0: I encourage you to take your Bibles out and turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 18. We're going to be considering a section of chapter 18 as I preach a message I've entitled Trial and Denial, Trial and Denial. The passage we'll consider describes the denial of Peter when questioned by some really insignificant people and the trial of Jesus before the high priest over Israel when I originally outlined the entire gospel of John into preaching passages back in November of 2021 when I got to this section here I determined to do two distinct sermons one sermon I was going to preach on the trial of Jesus and the other sermon I was going to preach on the denial of Peter And whenever I got to it, I said, you know, I'll just do these two paragraphs, which is kind of skipping some, and then I'll do the next two paragraphs, which is going back and reading one and skipping another. But on Monday, as I read through the passage again, I was hit and struck by the fact that there's a reason John kind of goes back and forth between these two scenes. There's a scene inside the palace of the high priest, and then there's a scene in the courtyard outside of that palace. And John takes his metaphorical camera lens and he focuses in on one scene and in the very next paragraph, he switches to the other camera. And there's a reason he did that. And so I changed up how I was gonna preach this section. I'm gonna do it all together because I think there's a point that, that John is trying to make. And part of it is this. We see on the scene inside the palace, Jesus standing in the face of hostility, resolutely determined to accomplish the purposes for which he came. But when the camera goes to the outside, to the courtyard where Peter is, well, he folds up like a cheap suit. He doesn't stand under the pressure. And so as we follow John's camera lens, as it focuses back and forth, I want us to see these two scenes where we see trial and denial. Let's look at the Bible. We're going to be reading verses 12 through 27 all together This morning. This is the God breathed word of the Lord. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father in law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it and at once a rooster crowed. That may be helpful as we consider John's account here of the trial of Jesus and the denial of Peter, that we have something of a synopsis, a consolidation, if you will, of all four gospel accounts. Because as you lay them over against one another, you can see the kind of chronology of these wee hours of the morning of Friday morning as Jesus is going and being moved from one place to another. Here are the trials of Jesus. Um, The events of early Friday morning, uh, these events would really need to happen quickly. Here's why. It's Friday. The Sabbath day begins at sundown on Friday. And so all they want to do to Jesus needs to be done that day. So this is a rushed job. It's a quick movement. Uh, They had to make some hasty arrangements. First, as we read, Jesus is brought before Annas for interrogation. Now, Annas was not the high priest that year, but he had been high priest between AD 6 and AD 15, He was kind of the head of the high priestly family. His sons and son-in-law now served in that office behind him. Well, that hearing would be inconclusive, and so Annas transfers him to Caiaphas, his son-in-law, for additional questioning. It was actually before Caiaphas where Jesus stood before the entire Sanhedrin. This was the high court of Israel. Some 72 elders who ruled over Israel, they were the ones who would sit in judgment of Jesus that morning. Well, in that trial, they brought forward false witnesses to testify against Jesus, to say things that were untrue, but there were no charges that could be successfully established. So they asked Jesus, frankly, Caiaphas did, are you the Messiah? Jesus said, yes. (laughs) And he says, we don't need any other evidence. We don't need any other witnesses. He's just committed blasphemy. And so at that, Pontius, excuse me, Uh, Caiaphas sent him to the Roman governor over Judea, Pontius Pilate. Reason being, Pontius Pilate is the only one who could authorize the death sentence. Though this Jewish court could convict him of a crime, a capital crime, they didn't have the power to kill him. So they sent him to Pontius Pilate in order to be killed, to execute the death penalty. Well, when Pontius Pilate learned that Jesus was from the region of Galilee, Well, he said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to send you over to King Herod because King Herod is the one who actually has jurisdiction over Galileans. So Jesus goes before King Herod and King Herod's heard all about Jesus. And he's thinking, this is some kind of magician who's come into my court. Do a trick, Jesus. Do something miraculous. Let's see it. The Bible says that Jesus was silent. He didn't say a word. Obviously, Herod's getting very frustrated, very upset. He begins to mock Jesus. He begins to abuse Jesus, as does his soldiers, his officers. And at that, Herod sent him back to Pilate for sentencing. Pilate, at this time, a crowd had gathered, wanted to fulfill his custom that he always had on Passover, and that was to release a Jewish prisoner who had been convicted of a crime, of a capital crime. He desired to release Jesus to them but what did the crowd say? Crucify him. We want to see him dead and at that by late morning Jesus was in fact crucified and by that afternoon he was dead. Now John doesn't record many of these events that took place that morning that we just rehearsed but he is highlighting particular aspects of the trial of Jesus. Again, like we saw last week, he shares what he shares, one, knowing that the other three gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, had been written decades before, and he assumes you've already read those gospel accounts. And so he's writing this gospel account with some certain themes and propositions he's wanting to underscore and to present. Last week we saw that the theme was this, Jesus is sovereign over all. So what is it that he's wanting to underscore in this account this morning we're considering? Well, I think at least in part, what John wants us to see is this. Jesus willfully and voluntarily submitted to the plan of redemption for the sake of his people, for the glory of God. And so John is making this point by drawing together in our view these two simultaneous events that are happening side by side, one inside the palace, one outside in the courtyard. One is the trial of Jesus, the other is the denial of Peter. And in these two intertwined events, what we see is that Jesus voluntarily abandons himself to the will of these cruel injustices of evil men to pay for the sin the very sin that peter is committing in that moment it's fantastic in fact it's just as the prophet isaiah foretold in isaiah 53 verse 8 he says by oppression and judgment he was taken away and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living stricken for the transgression of my people. He was dying for the very sin that Peter was committing in that very moment. From these four paragraphs, which describe these intertwining scenes of trial and denial, there are four main headings I want to put over these four paragraphs as we study them together this morning. The first one is this. Number one, a trial of dignity. This is a trial of dignity, at least on Jesus' part. Jesus, as he is led away by his captors, as he is bound up with cords, he perfectly and completely maintains his dignity. And in so doing, he demonstrates that he is willfully and voluntarily submitting to the purpose and the plan of redemption that was drawn up within the mind of the triune God before the foundation of the world. If you'll remember from last week, it was a small army that was dispatched to the Garden of Gethsemane to bring Jesus in and his followers. And at that arrest, he takes the occasion of his arrest to display his glory, to display his miraculous power one more time. A... a, cohort of Roman soldiers is a thousand soldiers there may not have been that many but there was a lot and at Jesus's word I am they were leveled by the power of his sovereign position but additionally we saw not only that not only did he level the soldiers he leveled the officers of the temple he leveled uh, the uh, betraying disciple he leveled the Jewish leaders who were there Peter, impetuous Peter, pulled out his dagger and took a swipe at the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus miraculously recreated the ear. Now, surely, seeing these displays of miraculous power as they came to arrest Jesus would make them second guess their intentions, wouldn't they? Who is this? Who is this man? You might think that would be the case, but they would not be dismayed. Because here's the deal. It was Jesus' display of miraculous power, particularly over the last several weeks as he healed a man who had congenital blindness. And that man born blind went to the authorities and was confirmed to be able to see. And he says, I don't know how it happened. All I know is this guy named Jesus touched me. They couldn't refute the miracle And then in chapter 11 of John's gospel, we see perhaps the most amazing miracle. Jesus raises Lazarus, four-day dead Lazarus, from the dead. And this miracle was attested to by hundreds. So he had already displayed his power. Another display of power wasn't going to dismay their intention. In fact, it was his display of power and authority that really caused them to Concerned because now his words, his judgment upon the false teachers over Israel was backed up by his position. There was no other option for them but to have him removed if they were going to retain their authority. He, he's legitimized himself simply by the power he's displayed. And the text says simply in verse 12, so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the jews arrested peter and bound him again a thousand perhaps roman soldiers along with these jewish officers came to him these armed men matthew records that when jesus told peter to put his sword away he followed that up with a little bit of insight I think it's interesting insight. Notice what Jesus said to Peter in Matthew 26, 53. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? I told you last week, a legion of soldiers is 10,000 soldiers. Quick math, students. What's 12 times 10,000? 120,000. What do you think the odds are for this Roman cohort going against 120,000 angelic hosts. Who's going to win that fight? I think we know. In fact, I'll tell you what it would be like. We kind of see the power, the destructive power of a single angel in the book of 2 Kings. In 2 Kings 1935, here's the destructive power of just one angel. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out And that one angel struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. And Jesus says to Peter, yeah, they got 1,000 soldiers. What of it? I can call for 12 legions, 120,000 angels, and oh, by the way, one of these angels can take out 185,000. There's no match. And the point is simply this. They would not take Jesus's life from him. He gave it up willfully. He gave it up voluntarily. The, sec, the text, excuse me, also says they bound him. They bound him. What a joke. They tied up Jesus? They bound him? Well, what's the point of this? Well, obviously, this reminds us of some things. There are several things in the Old Testament that prefigure Jesus and particularly his death in our place. One of those is found in Genesis chapter 22 as Abraham takes his son, his one and only son, the son of promise, up Mount Moriah and he follows the instruction of the Lord to sacrifice him. Notice what verse nine of Genesis 22 says. When they came, that's Abraham and Isaac, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, we know how that story goes. God provided a substitute after Abraham's obedience, but here we have Jesus in perfect obedience to the will of his father, and he is bound. He's tied up. The the direct descendant of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, is bound to be laid upon the altar for our sin. This is fantastic. In fact, all of the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament, they are prefiguring the very sacrifice of Jesus. The psalmist saying these words in Psalm 118, 27, the Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. Watch this, bind the festal sacrifice with cords, up to the horns of the altar. They would tie up the animal and they would wrap the rope from that animal on the horns of the altar so it would be still. And there they would slit its throat and sacrifice the animal. And here these officers, they bind Jesus and they take him to the trial. Now this initial arraignment we see is before Annas. Annas, again, is something of the patriarch of the high priestly family. His sons, and now his son-in-law would follow after him. He's kind of like the godfather. Don't mess with the family. That's Annas. Annas was the godfather. Excuse me, he was the high priest from 6 AD until 15 AD. His son-in-law, his daughter's husband, reigned from AD 18 to AD 36. Now, the tradition, in fact, the law of the Old Testament was that the high priest was to serve as high priest for life. So why did he only serve until 8015? And here we are around 8033, and he's not serving. Although he served, and according to Jewish customs, should have served for his life, the Roman authorities, the Roman Empire, was not happy about that tradition. They didn't like uh, consolidation of power to be with one man for too long, and so they deposed Annas from that office and Caiaphas was put in his place. The point is, though, that Annas was really seen by the people to be the leader of the family and to be the legitimate high priest, and so that's why they took Jesus to Annas first. Now, John reminds us in verse 14 of our focal text, he reminds us that we've seen Caiaphas, we've heard from Caiaphas already in the narrative of John's gospel Back in chapter 11, again, after Jesus resurrected Lazarus from the dead, the Jewish leaders are all all up in arms. What are we going to do about Jesus? I mean, if Jesus goes on like this, people are going to clamor around him. They're going to follow him. They're going to continue to proclaim he is, in fact, the Messiah. And here's what's going to happen. In fact, here's what they said would happen in verse 48 of John 11. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Translation, we'll lose the cushy jobs we're sitting on. We're ruling over the people of Israel. We're swindling them out of their money from all the rituals that we have tacked on in the high priest's position and in the temple. If we let him go on like this, we're going to lose it all. So Caiaphas comes in and he says, you guys are a bunch of knuckleheads. I've got the solution to our problem. Here's what he says in verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now, did Caiaphas believe in, Caiaphas believe in what we understand as substitutionary atonement? No. He did not intend to say, yes, the unrighteousness of man will be imputed to Jesus and the righteousness of Jesus will be imputed to us. It's better for one man to die for the whole nation. That's not what he meant. What he meant is we got to take him out to save our jobs. One man needs to die for the nation, and that's exactly what they intended to do. But little did they know, little did Caiaphas know, that his designs were subordinate to to God's designs. Little did Caiaphas know that his plan was inferior to the overall redemptive plan of God. And that's what we see playing out here in front of us. They walked Jesus from the Garden of Gethsemane to Annas' palace, bound, and Jesus walked that road in complete dignity. He didn't decry the injustice. He didn't plead his innocence. You're arresting an innocent man. He walked, just as Isaiah said, like a lamb is silent before its shearers. And Jesus walked in that trial of dignity. Well, that leads to the second paragraph in our passage, not only the trial of dignity, but secondly, a a denial of discipleship, a denial of Discipleship. Again, John's account tells us that following Jesus' arrest, that Peter and another unnamed disciple followed Jesus as he's led away from the Mount of Olives, from the Garden of Gethsemane, to the palace, Peter and another disciple followed him. Now, who is this unnamed disciple? Well, this is the way John often refers to himself throughout his gospel account. He's kind of humble, he doesn't want to put himself forward. Like whenever they arrive at the grave, the one disciple beat Peter. I won't say who he is, but he was just a lot faster than Peter. I don't want to say who that is. Oh, it was me. <laughs> so here he is again, the unnamed disciple. He says, guess what? I was able to go into the courtyard. I was able to go into the courtyard of the high priest because I know the high priest. I know the family. How is that? Well, it's, it's likely that... Uh, John's family is from the tribe of Levi, which was the tribe of the priestly line. And so it's a family situation here. He knows the people. Now, Mark tells us that Peter and John, for instance, followed somewhat at a distance. There was some space between Jesus, the arresters, and them following behind. But we can't lose sight of the fact that Peter does initially show some courage here. I mean, where are the other 10 disciples? They're out of town. They fled. The shepherd was struck and the sheep scatter. But Peter had boldly proclaimed, even if everyone else scatters, Lord, I will never forsake you. I will never abandon you. So he initially does show some courage. He's following, yes, at a distance, but he's still following. But that following at a distance, it does kind of indicate he still has some self-preservation in mind. I don't want to be too close. Um, I I don't want to follow too close, otherwise they might take me too. So he sneaks around kind of in the darkness, in the shadows, as it were. John, on the other hand, he just walks right in, walks right into the courtyard because he's known by the family. Um, But then he recognizes, oh, Peter didn't come in with me. So he goes over to the slave girl who's watching the gate And he goes, hey, young lady, do you see that guy kind of hiding behind the bushes over there? It's cool if he comes in. He's with me. And Peter comes in too. As he's walking through the gate, this servant girl says to Peter, hey, aren't you one of his disciples too? Didn't didn't you study under this guy that's being arraigned inside? That's just a casual remark, a non-threatening question from a servant girl who really didn't pose any kind of threat to Peter. But Peter had already begun this self-preservation mode and his initial knee-jerk reaction to her simple, non-threatening question. I am not. I, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not him. He was seemingly caught off guard. But that first lie, that first denial made the next lie and the next denial all the more easier. Have you noticed this before in your own life? When you tell one lie, the next one is a lot easier to tell. When you deny Jesus the first time, it's a lot easier to deny Jesus the second and the third time. It's easy to repeat a denial of the Lord, it's difficult to correct our denials of the Lord. Once you succumb to the temptation, it's much easier to succumb the next time and the next time. And it really informs us of how important it is as Christians. Students, as you begin school this year, as you are just a couple weeks into the school year, college students, it's very important that you Let your faith in Jesus be known immediately. Initially, you start a new job, you're in a new workplace, it's very important that your faith in Christ be clear. Because if you just kind of hide in the bushes, if you succumb to the temptation to kind of be in the background, it's going to be very difficult to correct that mindset and that mode of operation verse 18 tells us that Peter is standing by a fire to warm himself with some other people John tells us it's the same servants and the same officers that had gone to the garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus and now these same servants these same officers they're around the fire here it is uh, probably four o'clock in the morning before the rooster crowed and they're warming themselves by the fire what do you think the subject of their conversation around the fire is Who do you think they're talking about? What events do you think they're recounting together? What just happened to them in the garden? I can't believe it. That guy knocked us over just with a word. Yeah, and did you see? This one knucklehead that follows him, he cut off his servant's ear, and Jesus, he just put it right back on. Yeah, but man, the high priest and our authorities, they say he's an evil man. He's an insurrectionist. He's a wrongdoer. Now, who is the one person Standing around that fire that could correct their misconceptions about Jesus. Who is the one person? Peter. Did he say anything? Not a word. How often does this happen in our lives? It could be at work, it could be on a Zoom call, it could be in a community event, a sports event. And you hear somebody blaspheme the Lord. Or you hear some know-it-all say, you know, there's really no proof for God's existence. Or you hear someone malign Christ's church. They're just a bunch of hypocrites. And we, like Peter, can just sit there tight-lipped and say nothing. Not speak up for the Lord, whose character is being maligned. Not speak up for his people. I couldn't help but think of Psalm 1.1 as I considered Peter standing beside these people who were maligning Christ's character. Psalm 1 says this: Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time? you gave testimony for Jesus in an environment that was not church-related? When was the last time you spoke of your faith in Christ in a group of people or to a person that was not clearly made up of disciples of Jesus? I'm afraid most Christians today are living under the delusion that God has placed us in this world and we view this world something like a theme park, Oh, we're in the world. It's a great theme park with all these attractions and all these rides and all these booths for our enjoyment and for our delight. Friend, God has not placed you on earth to live in a theme park. He's placed you on earth to live in a battleground. It's a war out there. And if you wake up every morning thinking, oh, I'm in the world in this theme park, the amusement park of the world for my delight and my joy, And not, it's a battleground, waking up every morning, putting on the armor of God, knowing you're being sent out to push back the works of darkness to expand the kingdom of God. Guess what? Just like Peter, you're going to deny the Lord over and over again. We're in a battleground, not a theme park. We're going to war, not to some amusement gallery. And so John's camera shot, it it moves now from what's happening on the outside. We see now the third paragraph, and he goes back to the palace, and we see what I'm calling a trial of devotion, a trial of devotion. While Peter is on the outside, warming himself by the fire, not saying a word, Jesus is being interrogated by Annas on the inside. Now, there's something I want to point out. Here, at this point, Jesus is being questioned by Jewish authorities. Pilate is the Roman authority. He's not gone before Pilate yet. He's just being questioned by Jewish authorities. And here's what we need to understand. The Mosaic law, the law that the Jews were supposed to function under, strictly forbade the direct questioning of a defendant, Jesus being the defendant. It strictly forbade the interrogation of someone who was on trial. All the legal protocols of the Jewish law, they were just thrown out the window. This was not a, a trial. This was a murder plot. This was not some kind of legal proceeding. This was a lynching. And John, in fact, reports to us that Annas had a two-pronged approach to his questioning. Questioning. Two things he wanted to know about to establish charges against Jesus. Notice again, verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about these two things, his disciples and his teaching. First, Jesus, tell me about your disciples. Who are they? Where are they from? How many you got? Where are they at right now? And then he questioned Jesus about his teaching. So what have you been teaching What is it that you believe about Israel, about God, about the priests and the uh, religious authorities that you have rebuffed over these last few years? He's looking for, one, some evidence of an insurrection by asking about his followers, about his disciples, and he's looking for some evidence of heresy, of false belief. Jesus' response to Annas is quite telling. Even though he's being questioned, first of all, tell me about your disciples. I don't know if you noticed or not. Jesus didn't answer that question. We mentioned, we saw last week, that Jesus stood between these destroyers and his sheep. As the shepherd, he's protecting the sheep. He says, you can take me, you're not taking them. And now here he is again this week. He's not revealing who they are, where they are, how many there are. Once again, the shepherd is laying down his life for the sheep. He doesn't even answer the question he just bypasses it altogether. but what about his teaching what's the question about what's your teaching Jesus well here's how he responded to that question verse 20 Jesus answered him I have spoken openly to the world I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together I've said nothing in secret why do you ask me ask those who have heard me what I said to them they know what I said now there's a couple things going on here you have to remember this is Passover week and Jewish history tells us that the city of Jerusalem would swell to over a million people during the week of Passover. And we see from all four gospel accounts that during that week, from Palm Sunday all the way through, Jesus is daily going into the temple. What's he doing in the temple? Is he just watching? No, he's speaking. He's teaching. He's proclaiming judgment. The other gospel accounts tells us, tell us that he uh, rid the temple of the money changers and the sellers, he took authority in the temple. He says, you're turning my temple into a den of thieves and robbers. What's he saying? Annas, Annas, you know. Everything I've said has been said publicly. Tens of thousands of people have heard what I've said. Here's the other thing Jesus is doing by saying, go ask them. He knows Jewish law. You're not allowed to interrogate me. You're not allowed to question me without any other witnesses. Go find some witnesses if you want to uh, bring charges against me. Go find some people who heard what I said. That's the way this is supposed to be done. Well, one of the guards recognized Jesus was, in fact, rebuking Annas. So what does he do? Well, he strikes Jesus in the face, likely with actually a club. Notice how Jesus responded in verse 23. Jesus answered him, the guy that just clubbed him. If what I said is wrong, you bear witness about the wrong. You give testimony. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? In other words, if you don't have an intelligent, cogent argument to bring against me, obviously you're just gonna resort to brute force, which is the way it goes with bullies on the playground, right? They don't have intelligent arguments, so they just resort to to brute force. I just think in Annas' mind, he's beginning to recognize, I cannot match wits with Jesus' intellect. It's four o'clock in the morning. I'm retired. I don't have time for this. (laughs) So what does he do? He sends him to Caiaphas, verse 24. Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas who was the high priest, the active high priest, not high priest emeritus like Annas. I want you to think about the reality of this scene. Here is Annas, high priest emeritus, sending Jesus to Caiaphas, the one who holds the office of high priest, and they are interrogating who Hebrews chapter four says is the great high priest over the people of God. Their authority is borrowed authority. Their power is flimsy power. Their justice, well, it's actually injustice. And they're questioning the great high priest who has absolute authority, total power, and he always rules a complete justice and truth. What a travesty. Instead of Jesus pulling rank on Annas, Say, hey, you probably don't know this. I'm actually the high priest over the universe. Instead of Jesus pulling rank, what does he do? He sets aside his position and he voluntarily and willingly goes to the cross as the shepherd going to lay down his life for the sheep. What a savior! What a savior! Well, this is all the Jewish side of the trial that John records. And we know from the other gospel accounts, again, John assumes you've read them, that Jesus then goes before Caiaphas, and not only Caiaphas, but the entire gathering of the Sanhedrin, they could get together at six o'clock in the morning to interrogate Jesus. He goes before them. That's not recorded in John's gospel. What John does next, and we'll see this Lord willing next Sunday, is he then goes before Pilate, the Roman governor over the region. Well, at that, John's camera now in our passage turns again. It goes from the inside of the palace, now back out to the courtroom. In this fourth paragraph, we see a denial of destiny. And I say it's a denial of destiny because Jesus said it's destined to happen. He warned Peter, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows and it's almost as if Peter had completely forgotten about Jesus's prediction in this last paragraph of our passage John records how Peter denied knowing the Lord two more times the second denial it was a very similar question to what the servant girl had asked him at the gate there were some there around the fire hey aren't you one of his disciples and he responded in the exact same way I am not I am not one of his disciples. And then the third questioner John tells us is actually a relative of Malchus. Malchus we met last year, he's the poor soul that Peter cut his ear off. And this third questioner says, hey, aren't you the dude that cut off my cousin's ear? In Mark's gospel, which most scholars believe is sourced by Peter himself, it's really Peter's account through Mark's pen. In Mark's gospel, Mark tells us from Peter that at this third denial, he cursed and he swore, I do not know the man. I didn't cut off his ear. I have no association with Jesus. And immediately, the rooster crowed. Many of you are probably familiar with what a weather vane is. A weather vane, uh, spe- specifically before modern meteorological inventions and technology, weather vanes are perched on top of tall buildings. they a barn out on a farm landscape or in town on a tall building in town. And the way a weather vane works is When the wind changes direction, the weather vane will turn and will point in the direction the wind is blowing. And this is actually very helpful, even today it's helpful, to do some forecasting of the weather. So, for instance, if the weather vane suddenly turns and begins pointing south, you know that the wind is blowing from the north. What kind of wind is in the north? It's cold air. So maybe a cold front is coming through, a nor'easter, as they're called. If the weather vane turns to the north, then the wind is blowing from the south, and so the air from the south is warm air, and when the warm air comes forward, sometimes it produces thunderstorms, and so weather vanes throughout history have been very helpful in trying to predict weather patterns before modern meteorological technology. Now The question is, why is there usually a rooster on top of the weather vane? Does the rooster have something to do with wind direction? No, nothing at all. It's actually connected to this story here with Peter and his denial. The story's really interesting because it it started appearing around the 1500s. If you know anything about church history, what happened in the 1500s? The Protestant Reformation. And she began having towns and villages and cities in Europe that the the church in the middle of town was a Roman Catholic church, people began being converted to the gospel, and those churches transitioned from Catholic churches to Lutheran or Presbyterian. And so they wanted to distinguish themselves and differentiate themselves from Roman Catholicism and just give evidence to biblical fidelity. Now, most Roman churches had on their steeples a crucifix or a cross and so Protestant reformers said we don't want to be wrongly identified with the Roman Catholic Church so let's put a different icon on our steeples and you know what they picked a rooster what why would they put a rooster on the steeples well this actual practice of having a rooster on the steeples of Protestant churches actually immigrated to the United States. I did some research this week in First Presbyterian Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. Here's a picture of their beautiful sanctuary, a Reformed church. Notice what's perched on the top of their steeple. A rooster. What? This is 2023, people. Why you got a rooster on top of your church? Well, here's why. The steeple was the tallest building in town the perfect place to put a weather vane. But that steeple had a rooster on top of it, and here's what the rooster signified. Two things. One, we want to identify ourselves with the rooster because with the Protestant Reformation, it's the dawning, the dawning of a new day. We are throwing off the shackles of Roman Catholicism, and with the rooster crow, it's the dawning of a new day. But here's what else that represented. Secondly, it represented not denying Jesus. You see, they recognized that with the Roman Catholic oppression and persecution and hostility that was sure to come upon them, and it did, they wanted to see at the top of the steeple a rooster to remind them, do not deny the Lord. And so as they began putting weather vanes on top of these Protestant churches, well, they didn't want to get rid of the rooster, and so that's why today weather vanes, have roosters on them. Isn't that fantastic? The point is simply this. Do not deny the Lord. All four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they record Jesus' prediction, Peter, are you going to deny me, three times before the rooster crows, and they also record Peter's denials and how he did, in fact, deny him three times. In fact, I want you to consider as we close Luke's account of Peter's denial, some very poignant aspects of his record. Luke 22, verse 60, but Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Watch this. Jesus inside the palace, Peter outside in the courtyard. And the Lord turned... (laughs) and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows, today you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. I mentioned at the beginning of this message, I had originally planned to preach two sermons on these two aspects, the trial and the denial. But Monday, as I was reading through it again, I recognized John's intent. He wants us to see these two scenes simultaneously together intertwined. The question is why? Why does John want us to see these? Why does he want us to bounce back and forth between these two locations? For one, with all of our consideration of the corrupt Jewish leaders and the cowardly betrayal of his chief disciple, Peter, John really wants us to focus our attention on Jesus. He wants us to look to Christ. The point of these comparisons is Jesus alone is who we can trust. Can't trust even our leaders completely. We can't even trust ourselves. But perhaps most significantly, and I've alluded to this already, at the very point when Peter is sinning against the Lord, Jesus is determining resolutely to die for that specific sin. And so I think when Jesus turns and looks at Peter and looks him in the eye, I don't think, and this is just my personal opinion, I don't think it was a look of disappointment or disgust. I think it was a look of, Peter, I got this. I got it. I'm dying for you. I'm dying for that. I'm resolutely set with my face like flint to go to the cross to bear the penalty for your sin. And friend, if Jesus took the righteous judgment that Peter's sin deserved, he also took the righteous judgment that your sin deserves. Dying in our place We know again from Luke's pen that Peter repented he went out and he wept bitterly and we know he was genuine in his repentance here's why because just a few short weeks from this episode his greatest fall Peter will stand before the very Sanhedrin the very Caiaphas that condemned Jesus to die and he would boldly proclaim his allegiance to Christ You can be restored. You can be forgiven. You may think, I've failed him too greatly. I've sinned too deeply. I've gone down too far, those dark holes of disobedience. Not for Jesus. Not for Jesus to pick you up and rescue you and set you on mission with him. So you respond the same way Peter responded. Weep, repent, and then allow the Lord to fill you with his spirit and to use you in his kingdom. As we come to this time of response, these steps here can serve as a metaphorical kneeling bench. Lots of old churches had mourning benches where you wept bitterly, where you mourned over your sin. These steps can serve as a mourning bench, M O U R N I N G. You weep over your sin. Do that today and allow the Lord to lift you up and set you on his purpose. And that leads to my last thought. Though we will fail the Lord again and again, he will not ultimately forsake his own.